Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not in Print. Alex Buzo was born in Sydney and educated at the University of New South Wales. In the late 1960s, his early plays, Norm and Ahmed, Rooted and the Front Room Boys, pioneered a revival of Australian theatre. Macquarie and other historical plays such as Big River and Pacific Union helped to popularise themes of our individual and national maturity. Buzo's books, Tautology, The Longest Game, The Young Person's Guide to the Theatre, and A Dictionary of the Almost Obvious, confirm his reputation as an important recorder of the modern Australian idiom. And following his death in 2006, his daughter, Emma, founded the Alex Buzo Company, which was the first arts organisation in Australia to produce, promote, and perpetuate the work of a single Australian writer. Today I'm going to read an article that Alex wrote for Quadrant magazine in 2004. It's called Wary Asians on a Theme, Dramatising in the Near North, and unpacks the cultural complexities that Alex encountered when presenting his work in Asia, from India to Malaysia to Indonesia. Seeing the reactions from audiences, reading local critics' appraisals of his work, listening to the director's choices about his character's motivation and truth, then trying to make those same choices himself when he directed his play Pacific Union in Jakarta. And of course, the piece is brimming with Alex's insight and humour, both just as sharp as each other. Here's my reading of Wary Asians on a Theme, dramatising in the Near North, by Alex Buzo. Wary Asians on a Theme, observed Ranjit Fernando, broadcasting from Sri Lanka. He meant variations on a theme, but although he is a television personality, like most inhabitants of the Indian subcontinent, Ranji has a VW problem. In the same league as those better publicized screen Nazis whose philosophy was, We don't do W here. In the Asian theatre, literary theme based plays are not the dominant genre. But when they do do an Australian play, and this is happening increasingly, interesting, even conclusive variations can happen across the sea vol. Most Asian theatre is tradition-based and dance-based, and Asia's cinematic infatuation with fantasy and animation actually grew out of computer games. In science fiction, there is little or no censorship on political or sexual grounds. Well-exposed babes are okay as long as they're in outer space and don't exhibit the wrong kind of ethnic or social characteristics. No one in sci-fi, or musicals, or sci-fi musicals, has ever been arrested. It was Schindler's List that got banned in Malaysia, not Scooby-Doo, The Matrix, or Legally Blonde. When the Actors Studio produced my play, Norm and Ahmed, in Kuala Lumpur, however, they had to pay the police a $500 deposit, which was returnable if the piece had nothing offensive in it. I reflected that it was lucky I used the name Ahmed in this Muslim world, where Israel is the perennial villain, the Indians are Hindu bullies, and Chinese Singapore is a poisonous shrimp. Westerners are called Matsaleh. 
blow-ins, exploiters, and dudes who were likely to powder at the first whiff of the Dorian. At least I stuck it out for the season. Some productions in Asia are unmistakably racy, and Norman Ahmed was definitely this. But Australian director Pauline Furlong's production of Big River was non-racy, and had an ostensibly mixed cast that represented pretty much all you could find in Malaysian theatre. The actors loved doing it because of its themes of family responsibility, Furlong told me. That's still very big in Asia, she said. The play is a Federation-era comedy-drama set near Albury, and Furlong's main challenge as director was balancing the levels of acting in a culture that has little understanding of the psychological realism required for text-based theatre. Many of the films of Singapore and Hong Kong contain indicating or external illustration rather than method-derived performances, and this is largely true anywhere outside the West. Fans of flapping externals will love the 1995 Egyptian biopic, Nasser, where the hero is relatively straightforward. But Robert Menzies, Australian Prime Minister and Suez negotiator, is portrayed as the funny foreigner, all white mane, rolling eyes, and a fund of Polonius-style aphorisms. This is how Big River's leading performer was reviewed in the Sunday magazine, Kuala Lumpur, by Tekia Atwell. Its central character, Adela Learmonth, played by Mary George, is a 37-year-old widow who is described by her own family as someone who has never grown up. Though a little immature and spoilt, Adela possesses a strong mind. She is high-strung, talkative, self-absorbed, and given to dramatic fits of dissatisfaction. The very manner in which Mary speaks and acts is reminiscent of Vivian Lee's character Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Initially, the effect is amusing because it is obvious Mary is only acting. Adela is so resolute that what seems to be an exaggeration of her character can sometimes come across as ridiculous. But you have got to give it to Mary. She believes in what she is doing, consequently making her performance strong and her character believable. The good critic here is visibly wrestling with a heritage of overacting. All drama is a form of manifestation, of making manifest what passes for thought and suppression in real life. And I intended Adela to have a voice, not to be just a maker of speeches. So it is fascinating to see how the review tries to cope with this Western idea of internalized expression of something very basic. The play's premise is home is where the heart is, even if it takes Adela a while to locate her heart and home. Of course, overacting is not confined to the East. In Gosford Park, Helen Mirren works her socks off playing the housekeeper in an absolutely real, internalised performance. And then Stephen Fry blusters in as a police inspector and is not believable for one minute. It's me, Stephen, I'm up here on the screen, he appears to be saying, in a performance so hammily external they should have retitled the film Gosford Pork. Mirren must have been left wondering why she bothered. And the director presiding over this highly praised carnage? 
Veteran Fraud, Robert Altman. Family ties were also to the fore in the Kuala Lumpur production of Norman Ahmed, as many in the audience had relatives who had studied in Australia. For them, the play was a background to letters home, and the audience response was the most emotional and expressive I've seen in the piece's long history. It was first performed in Sydney in 1968, and Joe Hashem had actually been an usher for that production. Now, he would have been cast as Ahmed in any Australian production, but in Malaysia, he played Norm to Mustafa Noor's Ahmed, who was turned by the audience into the main character. The premise of the play, Never Underestimate the Power of Difference, certainly held up, even though dramatically it was stood on its head. He challenged the gods, said the very secular norm of his boss, and in this production, Ahmed gasped. Mustafa Noor was a superb actor, and as a Muslim, he was shocked by this, and then so was the audience, whose gasps were equally audible. I had always subconsciously believed that this was the right response, even if I had not fully plotted the Muslim attitude to the gods, you don't have to if you're the author. I felt the final click of the play go into place. I have now heard every possible response, I thought to myself, on that draining opening night in Kuala Lumpur. If I had been an American television personality, I might have said, we have closure. But there was more to come in this little odyssey. If Norm and Ahmed was the paradigm of the racy play in Asia, then Coralie Lansdowne says no was the opposite. The two extremes were an all-white production in Penang and an all-Indian one in Bangalore. This is how the critic for the Deccan Herald responded to the central character and its interpretation in Bangalore. Set in Sydney, the play renders the confusion brought about by the changing state of the modern woman, who expects a better deal out of life but does not clearly know what it is. The goals she tries to achieve are ill-defined. Venus Ashnani, who plays the protagonist, Coralie, displays a commendable knack of overwhelming the audience with her exquisite stage presence. Much of the inner turmoil the character undergoes is because of the fact that she is not at peace with herself, and Vina effortlessly lives the role. It is noticeable here, too, that the critic is struggling with notions of what constitutes good acting, or at least a manifest rendering of inner turmoil, and maturity is, perforce, an ill-defined goal. Apart from the delightful phrasing, overwhelming the audience is indeed a commendable knack for a performer to have, the foibles of Western critics, the attraction to overacting, the refuge in sociology, the shying away from assessing artistic merit, are also writ fairly large throughout the East. Sequential motive-based characterization in the West dates from Ibsen, but one look back at a Bollywood film is all it takes to realize that the Norwegian sage's revolution did not reach the East. It is a testament to the skill and technique of Vina and Mary that they made their characterizations of Coralie Lansdowne and Adela Learmonth stick with audiences without recourse to overacting. 
It's a minor irony now that the Ibsen legacy is under threat in the West from the dreaded pincer movement of economic rationalism and political correctness. Just check out the reality level in the latest Hollywood melodramas, not necessarily starting with Kevin Klein's ludicrous oeuvre. Another Bangalore publication, Black Coffee, listed a touring production of Norm and Ahmed in 2003 and advertised it with the one sentence, The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Luckily, there was no one from the RSL in Bangers at the time. They would, however, have been pleased to hear the director's comments on this motto, which Norm recites about halfway through the play. I always wanted to say this to you, the director wrote to me, but I think the line, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, is most prophetic and applicable to our times. It was that single phrase that drew us to your play. This production had emanated from Mumbai and had been directed by Quasar Takor Padamsi, son of theatrical luminary Dolly Takor. In Kuala Lumpur, it might have been an asset that Ahmed was a Muslim. It made the audience root into the play easier. But what had been pluses in Malaysia were huge minuses in Mumbai. Quasar was wary of this, but he told me, We kept Ahmed a Pakistani because it was very important for us to make an Indian audience realise how similar we are to our neighbours and to try to get them to sympathise with someone who we usually view as our enemy. Far from being a pipeline into this Western play, Ahmed's nationality now ran the risk of being more like a Brechtian alienation device. Fortunately, Quasar was largely successful in his aim, presenting the play in four different venues and then as part of a triple bill called Minorities, and going on to tour to appreciative audiences who eventually warmed to poor old Ahmed, victim in Australia, hero in Malaysia, but very much beyond the pale in India. In Kuala Lumpur, I had been aware of different responses from the Asian audiences, and it was only when being interviewed by local critic Krishan Jit for a quarterly magazine that I realised what had happened. I was most impressed by the erudition, insights and acerbic humour of the ethnic Indian Jit, and thought unwistfully of the half-witted PR flax in the critical core back home. Jit explained to me that, to the Malays in the audience, Norm was the white man, the Tuan, the oppressor, but to the Indians and Chinese, Norm was the Malay in their lives, the bully who gets all the good jobs under the Bumiputra, sons of the soil laws. You've written an accidentally lethal play, one of the actor's studio directors told me, corroborating Christian Jit's autopsy of the audience. My reading of the reactions, that the play provided a backdrop to letters home from students, suddenly seemed to be literal and speculative. In the case of the 2003 Mumbai production, the question of why Norm lashes out at Ahmed was adumbrated by Quasar. I'm sure you have your reasons, he said, and actually, much as I am interested, I would rather not know. For us, we use the speech that Norm gives Ahmed about settling down, joining a social club, etc., as a trigger. When the play was revived in Sydney in 2004, I was too sick to go to any rehearsals or the opening, 
But the director, Arnie Neem, later told me that we also decided that the crucial moment was the settling down, leagues club section. Now, as the author, I could sit back and listen to interpretations by people who had to decide on motives and truths. But when I directed my play Pacific Union in Jakarta, I had to answer these questions on the spot. Actors in Kuala Lumpur and Mumbai work under similar conditions, being paid enough to get by while acting, but having to moonlight as teachers and reporters between times. As Pauline Furlong had said, it was like Australian theatre and society a few years ago, in the best possible sense. Patrick White had written of Oz in the 1950s and 60s that the schoolmaster and the journalist rule what intellectual roost there is. But now that these positions are largely filled by restaurant reviewers and advertising executives, we may legitimately ask what progress has been made. I would stop short, however, of saying, as some people who are disenchanted with the foodies and the adders do, bring back the schoolmaster and the journalist. Let us not forget that those arbiters of yore thought that Patrick White, who had the emotional maturity of a sub-teen, wrote a masterpiece in The Ham Funeral. In Indonesia, I was dealing with ex-actors rather than part-timers. The Jakarta theatrical roost is ruled by the teacher and the diplomatist, professions where ex-actors abound. And I had the services of a brilliant American woman called Tracy, who taught at the international school, acted for the Jakarta players, and knew who had done what and where. The play, Pacific Union, is set in San Francisco in 1945 and deals with the founding conference of the United Nations. So, in a cast that included everyone from Bert Evert to TV Song by way of Claire Booth Luce, there was going to be a lot of racy stuff, as well as a big range in acting styles. Unless I could put a stop to it. The first UN Secretary-General was Alga Hiss, later accused of having spied for the Soviet Union in the 1930s and convicted of perjury after pleading innocent. I could never convince myself of his guilt and wondered what on earth he could have slipped to the Soviets in 1936. The blueprint for the Boulder Dam? A picture of the Rockettes? It wasn't as if it was Donald McLean, 1950, and the atom bomb. Hiss was in jail by then. It is alright for the author to be undecided or out of the loop during a production, but here I was directing and had to make up my mind. I did not. Tracy said that she had just the right man for the part of Alga, and I asked him plaintively, Can you play Hiss as if he might be guilty? The actor, an American called Wayne, looked at me with open contempt. Wayne was short and stout and bald, like a good scrum gone half to seed, John Buchan would have said, and in no way resembled the tall, dark Hiss. Wayne will deliver, promised Tracy, and by God, he did, playing the secretary-general as an Ivy Leaguer with one or two demons, but a master of authority when on parade. One of the jobs a playwright has in Australia is the traditional one of trying to make sure they don't crush all the humour and lyricism out of the middle-class characters. 
As director, I was sure I could get Oz Delegate and abstract painter Sam Attio played with the right amount of Larrikin bohemianism, but I failed. If the characters are educated and articulate, they cannot possibly be good sports. At least, this is the way the thinking runs. In the television version of George Johnson's My Brother Jack, Attio is lightly fictionalized as Sam Burlington, and the same thing happens. He's played as serious and cultured with no larrikin traits at all. This also bedeviled my Fiji play, The Marginal Farm, in which the central character is a governess during the CSR heydays of the 1950s. She's a sassy redhead. She's game for anything, I would say hopefully. But no, what we got was a governessy 1950s governess. The actor playing Sam Attio was a talented alumnus of the Darwin Theatre Group, and offstage, Chris had the down-to-earth qualities that I pined for on stage. These qualities came in handy when I was having trouble with Ramdansia, a good Indonesian actor who was struggling in the role of Philippines delegate Carlos P. Romulo. Romulo was crazy about his military uniform and wore it everywhere in San Francisco. At a party in the Fairmont Hotel in the play, a local journalist says to him, Get me another drink, will you? And Romulo is supposed to reply, I'm not a waiter. Ramdansia kept saying, I'm not whiter. And I kept telling him the line was, I'm not a waiter. Back came, I'm not whiter, for the umpteenth time, and Chris finally intervened with some Territorian horse sense. Look! It's because you're not whiter that they think you're a waiter. Ramdansia thought about this for a moment, and we started again. Get me a drink, will you? I'm not a waiter. Thank you, Chris! I shouted. It was hardly classic Stanislavski directing, and there wasn't a motive in sight. But it worked. Like most of the diplomatic and military staff, Chris spoke fluent Indonesian, but I did not. When I was instructing the lighting technicians at the Australian Embassy Theatre, I wanted to tell them that there was a shadow on the actors' faces. Cool it, I said, reasoning that if Wayang cool it meant shadow puppets, and Wayang was puppets, then surely... But they just stared at me. Thankfully, Chris arrived and spoke to them animatedly, and they fixed the problem on the spot. If Wayang Coolit means shadow puppets, and Wayang is puppets, how is Coolit not shadow? I asked him later. It just isn't, came a blunt reply that was worthy of Sam Attio. Although I was the most recent arrival in Indonesia of all the people working on Pacific Union, I appeared to be the only one who had read in a book on the country that it is considered very bad form to sit on a table. But actors love sitting on tables, for the same reason they love gripping the backs of chairs. It makes them look more relaxed on stage. I could not very well presume to instruct them as a mere blow-in on Indonesian politess, so I just kept saying things like, I think he's too agitated to sit down now, or I'll need you over here for the next bit. 
Also, the book did not elaborate or give a reason for this table-sitting ban, so I would have appeared a pretty sloppy and external director if I had raised the actual subject. Came the day, and came the hour, and Tracy's polyglot cast came up trumps. They were terrific, in many ways the best possible people for this particular play, and no one sat on a table. Ramdansia got a huge laugh from the Indonesian half of the audience for his perfectly timed I'm not a waiter. And later, as we all caroused on the embassy terrace outside the Platypus Club, he actually said to me, you have written a fine play. I simpered a bit and thanked him, but he was not finished. You are not, however, a director, and I suggest you do not direct again. When an Australian play is produced in Asia, there are all sorts of artistic and cultural collisions. But if it works, the author can lift a line from the soap operas and say, you complete me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or any other episode, then we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. You can find all of Quadrant Magazine's content available online at quadrant.org.au. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.